Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Newsletter Audio Cast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and this is Volume 12, Issue Number 45, corresponding with the week of October 24, 2022. This week, we're going to be looking at COVID quick hits and more. This is update number 73 for coronavirus newsletters. We're also going to look at the colonoscopy test and also recipe of the week. Let's start with our free thoughts. Quote, there are two bodies, the rudimental and the complete, corresponding with the two conditions of the worm and the butterfly. What we call death is but the painful metamorphosis. Our present incarnation is progressive, preparatory, and temporary. Our future is perfected, ultimate, immortal. The ultimate life is the full design. End quote. UVA's own Edgar Allan Poe. Okay, so coronavirus update number 73. What's going on? North Carolina, in a good place. There's no multi-inflammatory syndrome disease in children that we've seen in our clinic in a long time. North Carolina remains with low volumes of hospital bed use for ventilators and ICUs for COVID, and the moving average of disease is very low now in the 30,000 range. I'm going to stop covering the statistics in general from now on because they're relatively meaningless. The podcast that corresponds with this week's newsletter is number 32 with Dr. David Katz. This is Childhood Obesity Part 2, an excellent conversation with the former leader of the Preventative Medicine Lifestyle Institute at Yale uh, School of Public Health and also just a phenomenal linguist and speaker to the science of health. A couple of the questions that were asked on the results that came back from two weeks ago. Do you agree that Medicaid should split into two entities, one for children and one for adults? 89% said yes. I couldn't agree more. I think it's insane that we keep kids and adults tied together because the adults are more expensive and they drain the resources from the kids who would otherwise gain a huge amount of benefit from the resources that would allow them not to become sick adults. We're treating the wrong end of the spectrum. Should children's benefit be at the heart of most decisions? Second question. 100% said yes. Couldn't agree more there either. I think we should always be looking out for the best of our children first because, again, they become healthy adults. Okay. Omicron has a bazillion new strains now. Where, according to the data at this reading, was October 22nd, we had BA 4.6 at 11%, BA 2.75 at 2%, BF 0.7 at 7%, BA 0.5 at 62%, BQ 0.1 at 9%, BQ 1.1 at 7%. So we see BA 0.5 losing ground. That super strong Omicron variant now is not super strong anymore. BF.7, BQ.1, BQ1.1, all these other strains are now taking over. It's quite amazing. Never thought I'd see that, but you know what? Everything with Omicron and COVID in general has been nothing short of surprising. The BF.7 and the new BQ variants have mutations in the spike in nucleotide regions of the RNA genome, giving them more infectiousness, and more immune evasion. The data keeps emerging that 
all the antibody tests and excuse me antibody treatments are no longer functional the vaccine is not working well which we're going to get into and many other things but the good news is there's no level of higher morbidity we're not seeing more deaths we're not seeing more hospitalization that is the silver lining in an otherwise crazy world so from a cnbc article i wrote i'm um, excuse me i quote the two descendants of Omicron's BA.5 subvariant called BQ.1 and BQ.1.1 both have dangerous qualities or characteristics that could evade some of our interventions that we have, according to Dr. Fauci, he told CBS News on Friday. The two sublineages are responsible for more than 10% of all current U.S. cases, according to the latest Centers for Disease Control and Prevention data, just one week after they weren't even significant enough to list BQ 1.1 is also particularly adept at dodging the protective antibodies you get from prior infection or vaccination, Fauci noted. Comes from CNBC again. The article is in the newsletter. For me, it's amazing to think of an even more infectious strain than BA.5, but it appears there finally is one. All of these new variants are more infectious than what was previously one of the most infectious viruses on the planet as measles. So we're in a whole new world here with these COVID Omicron offshoot variants. The volume of SARS-2 Omicron variant coming out now with this pace is more akin to an influenza drift than a shift, like we saw with Delta to Omicron. However, the drift is at light speed compared to influenza. We are in uncharted waters, and this is a bit scary and fascinating as well. Hopefully, as I stated many times, if the morbidity remains low in the face of immunity from natural disease and or infection, then we are in good shape despite this annoyance. And when we think of a drift and a shift, a drift is a slight mutation variant like we're seeing now with these little Omicron offshoots of each other, whereas a shift is a massive switch like where uh, beta and alpha went to delta, where everything shifted at once and it was a massive shift in morbidity and everything else. So with COVID, we're seeing you know, both drifts and shifts, but it seems now we're looking at very, very rapid drifts. Okay, let's get into the quick hits. Number one, quote, the effectiveness of pre-Omicron infection against symptomatic BA.4 or BA.5 reinfection was 35.5%. The effectiveness against any BA.4 or 0.5 reinfection, regardless of the presence of symptoms, was 27.7%. The effectiveness of post-Omicron infection against symptomatic BA.4 or 0.5 reinfection was 76.2%. The effectiveness against any BA.4 or 0.5 reinfection was 78%. End quote. Altarwarne, A-L-T-A-R-A-W-N-E-H et al. 2022 was the source of that data. So for me, having had Omicron-based natural infection, you know, that's an Excellent feed forward protection against newer Omicron based variants through T and B cell activity, regardless of antibody status. It's pretty clear, you know, again, from the data that having had a recent infection does give you some excellent resource protection against further major outcomes, but not against just getting sick in general. Number two, more fascinating data on MRI technology and the possibility of imprinting concerns discussed by Dr. Paul Offit in the podcast a few weeks ago. An article entitled, Immune Imprinting, Breath of Variant Recognition, and Germinal Center Response in Human SARS-CoV-2 Infection and Vaccination. They state, quote, 
we analyzed human lymph nodes after infection or mRNA vaccination for correlates of serologic differences. Antibody breath against viral variants is lower after infection compared with all vaccines evaluated, but improves over several months. A viral variant infection elicits variant-specific antibodies, but prior mRNA vaccination imprints serologic responses toward Wuhan HU1, the ancestral strain, rather than variant antigens. In contrast to disrupted germinal centers in lymph nodes during infection, mRNA vaccination stimulates robust germinal centers containing vaccine, mRNA, and spike antigen up to eight weeks post-vaccination in some cases. SARS-CoV-2, antibody specificity, breath, and maturation are affected by imprinting from exposure history and distinct histological and angenic contexts in infection compared to vaccination. End quote. Roltgen, R-O-L-T-G-E-N, et al. 2022. So for me, this is another reason to have some natural immunity where possible to this virus instead of purely mRNA spike exposure through vaccination. Number three. Quote, the recent COVID-19 pandemic is a treatment challenge in the acute infection stage, but the recognition of chronic COVID-19 symptoms termed post-acute sequelae, SARS-CoV-2 infection, PASE, may affect up to 30% of all infected individuals. The underlying mechanism and source of this distinct immunologic condition three months or more after the initial infection remains elusive. Here, we investigated the presence of SARS-CoV-2 S1 protein in the 46 individuals. The analyzed T-cell, B-cell, and monocyte subsets in both severe COVID-19 patients and in patients with post-acute sequelae of COVID-19 PASC, the levels of both intermediate and non-classical monocyte were significantly elevated in long COVID patients up to 15 months post-acute infection compared to healthy controls. A statistically significant number of non-classical monocytes contained SARS-CoV-2 spike-1 protein in both severe and PASE long COVID patients out to 15 months post-infection. Cells from four out of 11 severe COVID-19 patients and one out of 26 also contain SARS-CoV-2 RNA. Non-classical monocytes are capable of causing inflammation throughout the body in response to fractalkine CX3CL1 and Rantes CCR5, end quote. This comes for us from Bruce Patterson at all 2021. Okay, that's a lot, but this is a piece of the puzzle to long COVID PASC, where the spike protein for immunologically dysfunctional reasons is persisting in the monocyte white blood cells inside the body, which will keep them activated, fighting, eventually leading to immune exhaustion and issues of long COVID, like fatigue, brain fog, and the suck, and on the alike. There's a lot more to learn about why certain folks are predisposed to these problems, but suffice it to say, this is what's happening. Number four, post-acute SARS-2 COVID long-term issues, PASC, has been looked at in a mouse model now. From the study, quote, the mouse-adapted SARS-CoV-2 strain MA10 produces an acute respiratory distress syndrome in mice similar to humans. To investigate PSC pathogenesis, studies of MA10-infected mice were extended from acute to clinical recovery phases. At 10 to 120 days after virus clearance, pulmonary histologic findings included subpleural lesions composed of collagen, proliferative fibroblasts, and chronic inflammation, including tertiary lymphoid structures. Longitudinal spatial transcriptional profiling identified global reparative and fibrotic pathways dysregulated in disease regions similar to human COVID-19. 
Populations of alveolar intermediate cells coupled with focal upregulation of fibrotic markers were identified in persistently diseased regions. Early intervention with antiviral EIDD2801 reduced chronic disease and early antifibrotic antigen intervention modified early disease severity. The murine model pr provides opportunities to identify pathways associated with persistent SARS-CoV-2 pulmonary disease and test countermeasures to ameliorate PRSC. End quote. Dinon, D-I-N-N-O-N, et al., 2022. This is one of the studies, the few, that are developing animal models to test drugs to deal with long COVID and post-COVID sequelae that may plague us for years to come. New antifibrin and antiviral drugs will be needed in some of the most sick humans that have long COVID or PASC. Number five, from the New England Journal of Medicine, we see, quote, in the fourth triennial burnout survey of U.S. physicians conducted between November 2020 and March 2021, 38% of physicians report at least one burnout symptom. For example, emotional exhaustion, detachment, depersonalization, perceived ineffectiveness. And 54% were dissatisfied with the work-life balance. These results were similar to those in the previous surveys. To determine the effect of the mature COVID-19 pandemic on burnout, investigators conducted a mid-cycle survey in December 21 and January 22, after all areas in the U.S. had experienced multiple COVID-19 surges. The mid-cycle survey showed that the prevalence of burnout symptoms and dissatisfaction with work-life balance had risen significantly to 63% and 70% of physicians, respectively. Female physicians were twice as likely as male physicians to have some symptoms of burnout, a significant increase since 2020. Physicians practicing emergency medicine, family medicine, general pediatrics were at excess risk for burnout compared to physicians in other specialties. End quote. Soloway, S-O-L-O-W-A-Y-B, et al., 2022. What a wake-up call this one is for our medical society as physician shortage remains an issue and burnout is driving this issue further toward the breaking point in patient care circles. I cannot tell you how many of my colleagues have retired or are soon to retire before their time and historically normal retirement ages for physicians because they financially can, even though they probably don't want to quit because medicine is an awesome field to be in scientifically and for patient care, the headaches of the systems of medicine, the bureaucracy, the legal side, the just the, the dysfunctional nature of the patient provider relationship being disrupted by all the different insurance companies, healthcare entities, everybody who wants to get a piece of this, this care model is disrupting the beauty of the care model, which is the healing art of the patient and the provider. Couple that to the nightmare of COVID and we have a tsunami of patient care retirement, quitting and the future looks grim for a while until we get more people trained. Number six, from Immunology, the journal. Quote, in this study, we investigated the host transcriptome landscape of cardiac tissues collected at rapid autopsy from seven SARS-CoV-2, two SARS-1, and six patient controls using targeted spatial transcriptomics approaches. Although SARS-CoV-2 was not detected in cardiac tissue, host transcriptomics showed upregulation of genes associated with DNA damage and repair, heat shock, and 
M1-like macrophage infiltration in cardiac tissues of COVID-19 patients. This comes to us from Kulasinghe et al. K-U-L-A-S-I-N-G-H-E et al. 2022. In English, this means that SARS-2 upregulated cardiac genes in the cells involved in inflammation, DNA repair, and immune activity. This likely reflects either a direct response to the virus or the cardiac cells or a viral hijacking of cellular activity. Neither of these responses is good for us. This data is giving us more understanding into the cardiovascular side effects of SARS-2 illness. Number seven, I have been using low-dose naltrexone for years to treat inflammatory and chronic fatigue type issues. Naltrexone is a drug that blocks the opioid receptors that lead to euphoria, post-opioid exposure, and food derivatives with opioid-like effects. At standard 50 milligram doses, naltrexone blocks the effects of morphine at 90 plus percent of the receptors. At the LDN, or the low-dose naltrexone 5 milligram dose, the effect appears to be more related to the immune system as it blocks the effect of pathogen recognition receptors, toll-like 4, which has downstream effects on inflammation following pathogen exposure or chemical exposure in the brain. How this is occurring in the brain is unknown. I have my theories. The chronic fatigue syndrome, myologic encephalitis, post-acute COVID sequelae world, is full of microbial intestinal dysbiosis, which allows lipopolysaccharides, which are fat sugar molecules of bacterial byproducts when a bacteria dies like a gram-negative rod, and they travel from the gut to the brain, triggering tolic receptor 4, leading to inflammation, glial activation in the brain, or microglia, and then the symptoms that we see of as pain, brain fog, and fatigue. The science here is interesting. From the study, quote, in total, 52 patients participated, of whom 76.9% were female. The median age was 43.5 years. Healthcare workers represented the largest occupational cohort at 35%. The median time from diagnosis of COVID-19 until enrollment was 333 days. 38 participants, or 73%, were known to commence LDN, two of whom stopped taking LDN post-commencement due to nuanced diarrhea, and also described fatigue. In total, 36 or 70% of the participants completed the questionnaire at the end of the two-month period. Improvement was seen in six of the seven parameters measured. Recovery from COVID-19, limitation in activities of daily living, energy levels, pain levels, levels of concentration, sleep disturbance, improvement in mood approach, approached but was not significant. Conclusions. Low-dose naltrexone is safe in patients with post-COVID syndrome and may improve well-being and reduce symptomatology in this cohort. Randomized controlled trials are needed to further explore this. End quote. That comes to us from O'Kelly et al. 2022. Also, some of the other data was from Polo, P-O-L-O et al. 2019 and Parkitney, P-R-K-I-T-N-Y et al. 2017. Take-home point for me if you have brain fog, concerns or you have post-acute COVID sequelae issues, speak to your provider about low-dose naltrexone. All right, section two. You may have heard about a new study regarding the efficacy of colonoscopy in detecting and preventing colon cancer death in humans. As always, the devil's in the details, and they are appropriately pointed out in Dr. Peter Atia's recent and excellent blog. He states in his blog, quote, the results mentioned above compared those who did not undergo colonoscopy with those who were invited to have the procedure 
not with those who necessarily did have the procedure. Indeed, the study authors report that only 42% of the patients, participants in the invited group, actually followed through with the screening. When restricting their analysis to this protocol adherence subgroup conducting a per-protocol analysis, the investigators found a much larger disparity between the groups. Relative to the usual care group, the invited group demonstrated significantly lower risk of both colorectal cancer diagnosis and colorectal cancer mortality at 10-year follow-up, end quote. So take-home point here is pretty darn simple. On the individual basis, early detection of cancer is the key to a good outcome, and a colonoscopy is the key to find a cancerous lesion before it becomes stage two, three, or four and has the chance to take you out. Get your screenings. Recipe of the week, smoothie recipes that are healthy and focused on positive metabolic balance. Go to the site listed in the newsletter for some options, including coffee, banana, and avocado berry. Okay, so as always, all of the links to the articles are found in the newsletter. You can find that at salisburypediatrics.com, health and wellness tab, and then click on uh, this issue, which is coronavirus update number 73, or the other section parts on colonoscopy or recipe of the week. Either way, as always, the data is here for you. Song of the week is Consider Us by Candlebox. You can get the link to Spotify. And that's it for this week. As always, hug those kids. Thank you for taking the time. If you like this audio cast or the corresponding podcast, please rate it on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. And uh, as always, you're welcome to send me a link or a question at my uh, email, which is newsletter at salisburypediatrics.com. And have a fabulous day. Hug those kids. Now for disclaimer. The information provided in this audio cast newsletter is for educational informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to treat or diagnose a health issue. This newsletter audio cast does not constitute development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.